to add my blessing, Lena, to you. May God bless you as you leave your, your mama's daughter. What a mama. This church will never forget you all because you've given too much to us. So thank you. God bless you, Elena. Um, many people throughout time have uh, tried to make predictions about the future, and when they do so, they prove themselves usually to be idiots because things don't normally turn out as people think. Religious people are very, very fond of uh, making predictions about the future, and when they do so, they usually are quite wrong. Let me give you some examples. I'll start with Baptists. This is a Baptist preacher by the name of William Miller. He predicted that the um, uh, return of Jesus Christ would take place on March 21st, 1844. When that didn't happen, he changed his date to April 18th, 1844. And 150 plus years later, he's way off. Charles Taze Russell. He's the founder of the Watchtower Society, or the Jehovah's Witnesses. He made all kinds of calculations. He calculated that Jesus Christ would return in the year 1874. And then he said that the final day of God's wrath would take place in 1914. He missed. This is the Assemblies of God. During World War I, the Weekly Evangel, that's the, um, that's the magazine of the Assemblies of God, carried this prediction, and I quote, We are not yet in the Armageddon struggle proper, but at its commencement. And it may be, if students of prophecy read the signs aright, that Christ will come before the present war closes. It's a hundred years ago. He missed that one. This is J.F. Rutherford. He was the, the successor to William uh, Russell, um, uh, Taze Russell of the Watchtower Society. He predicted the millennium would begin in 1925. And of course, he was wrong as well. He's, not, it's not only religious people that make um, predictions about the future. There are a lot of uh, secular people that do so as well. Let me give you some examples. Tris Speaker is a baseball player in the Hall of Fame, and this is what he said. Taking the best left-handed pitcher in baseball and converting him to a right fielder is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. And for those of you who don't know, that's Babe Ruth's picture right there. Turned out to be a pretty decent hitter. How about this one? Thomas Watson was the chairman of International Business Machines. I think there's a world market for maybe five computers. <laughs> I think he missed by about a billion. He was way off. What about this beauty? Television won't be able to hold on to any market it captures after the first six months. People will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. 1948, who was at the time 20th, 20th Century Fox Studios chief. No one's going to want to watch a box every night. I think the number now is five hours per day we, the average American, spends in front of that box. Here are some more. This is from um, uh, the New York Times, 1936. A rocket will never be able to leave the Earth's atmosphere. Got that one wrong? Or this one. Guess what? This is 
Lieutenant Joseph Ives in 1861. Here's what he said. Ours has been the first expedition and doubtless to be the last to visit this profitless locality, the Grand Canyon. Drill for oil? You mean drill into the ground to try to find oil? You're crazy. Associates of Edwin L. Drake refusing to drill for oil in 1859. Or this one from the National Kenster Institute, 1954. If excessive smoking actually plays a role in the production of lung cancer, it seems to be a minor one. You missed that one. This is United Artists Executive um, rejecting Ronald Reagan for the lead in the movie The Best Man in 1964. Here's the reason, quote, Reagan doesn't have that presidential look. After the first service today, someone came up to me and told me that the Beatles' first manager dropped them because he didn't think the electric guitar would ever be popular. He missed that one, too, and he missed out on several billion dollars as well. Um, you see, when people make predictions about the future, we usually are, are way, way off because we can't predict the future. And these statements just show you how far off we often are when we try to enter into this field of looking at what the future might hold. But today we're going to look at somebody in the Bible who had remarkably clear insight into the future. Now as you might know, if you've ever read the Bible, the Bible makes many predictions about the future. Unlike any other religious writings, nothing else comes close to it. And we happen to know for a fact that many, and I mean many, of the predictions made in the Old Testament came true perfectly in the life of Jesus, many of them. So we do know that. The prophet Micah predicted the place he'd be born, Bethlehem. Isaiah predicted how he would be born, a virgin would conceive and give birth to a child, and many other such prophecies. But one of the things prophecies do not tend to ever do is to give dates, like these religious people did. Because when you give dates, you've got data. And you've got data, and you can tell whether or not the person who made the prophet is a true or a false prophet. And so all of these that I told you before were false. They're false prophets. But now we're going to find in the scripture somebody who actually gives dates. And dates the most difficult thing to ever pro uh, talk about in the prophecy of anyone. And so today, if you have a Bible with you, we're going to look at what is considered the greatest passage in the Bible on the subject of the future. It's called the bedrock of all biblical prophecy. When Jesus was asked about the future, he quoted Daniel. And when John writes about the future in the book of Revelation, he goes back to Daniel. Because it's Daniel that's going to give us the basic timeline of the Bible for the future. And so I titled it today, A Peek into the Future. Charles Swindoll, the, the pastor down in Texas now, he wrote this. The vision of the 70 weeks revealed in Daniel 9 is undoubtedly the backbone of prophecy concerning Israel, Christ, and the Antichrist. It is also true that few predictions in Scripture have been interpreted in as many ways as have the 70 weeks of Daniel. 
So what we're going to look at today is going to be one of the most important passages in the Bible on the future, but also one of the most controversial. So I'm not going to stand before you and tell you that I have the definitive answer, because that is ridiculous. I do not. But I'm going to try with you to try to take the norm, most normal interpretation that I possibly can of the words of Scripture. And I think you'll see that this is reasonable, at the very least, because Daniel the prophet is going to give dates. And so, in this text of Scripture, we're going to first realize that, that this prophecy that God gives to Daniel is given out of the context of Daniel's prayer. Remember last week? Last week when we looked at Daniel chapter 9, the first number of verses, and it, it records one of the most beautiful and one of the longest prayers in the whole Bible. It's Daniel's prayer of confession. Do you remember what was behind it? Daniel, remember, is living in a foreign country. He is living in the country of what today would be Iraq and Iran, but he was taken as a young man, as a captive from his own country, which was Israel. He was taken as a, he was kidnapped and taken to Babylon and then raised at a very high level and he rose to the highest levels of government. One day, while he's in captivity as an old man, he's now in his 80s, he's reading the Bible. Remember, most people couldn't read back then, but Daniel is one of the most well-educated people in his whole culture. And interestingly, some of the best educated people in the whole world are the people who wrote our Bible. Moses was one of the most educated people in the world at his time. He was, he was educated in the Pharaoh's household. Daniel is one of the best educated people in the whole world because he was educated with the finest Harvard education of his day in Babylon. So Luke, in the New Testament, was a doctor, a very, very, very well-educated man. But Daniel's one of the best-educated people, I think you can safely say, in the world at his time. And he's reading Jeremiah's prophecy, and he comes across a passage, which you can read in your Bibles today, in which Jeremiah says that the captivity of the Jewish people would last 70 years. So what did Daniel do? He got out his calculator. Of course, he had a calculator back then, probably called an abacus or something like that. But he got out his math book, textbook, and he said, okay, I went into captivity in 605 B.C., and today is 538 B.C. He started to do his math and realized, it's almost time. God said that the captivity would be 70 years, and it's almost 70 years. So what does Daniel do? He gets on his knees and he starts to pray. He prays, oh God, we have sinned. We know we've sinned. But please, oh God, would you be merciful to us? Would you please bring us back to our homeland? That's what he prays. And this is what the Bible records. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill. So what is he doing? Well, God's holy hill is very clear. You see, the city of Jerusalem is built on some hills. The main hill is what's called Mount Moriah. That's the little hill over which the Dome of the Rock stands today. So he's praying for Jerusalem. 
And what's he praying for? He's praying that this city, which is where, that this is your city, oh God. This, the temple is your house, oh God. We are your people, and we're a disgrace in the world right now. Your city is in ruins, your temple doesn't exist, and your people are in exile. Oh God, bring us home. That's his prayer. Now, while he's praying, the Bible says, while I was still in prayer, an angel shows up. No, that doesn't happen every day. And it's not just any angel, it's Gabriel, the bigwig. He's the top dog. Gabriel, the man I had seen in an earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. That's about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. So Daniel's praying, and now he has a visitor. Now what's the visitor going to do? Well, the visitor's going to, um, well, the, well, first of all, why did the visitor come? It told us. The visitor's going to come because Daniel was praying, and God's now going to answer his prayer. There's a, an artist's picture of Daniel praying, and here's what Gabriel said. Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding as soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Can you imagine those words? Who is Gabriel? He's an angel. Where has he been? He's been in the presence of God. And who is the one who said this? God. Can you imagine? The, the God of the universe who made what the Hubble telescope shows us, something so vast we can't even comprehend it, that God, when he looks down at this earth and saw Daniel, he said, wow, what a man. God said that. That's quite a man. <laughs> Can you imagine God? I think he still does it. We don't know it. I think he still does it. He looks down, maybe some of us here, and says, oh, man, that person faithfully follows me. What a woman. What a man. Now, what does God do with people that he highly esteems? That doesn't mean he only has a couple of people that he likes and the rest of us he doesn't like. What it does mean is that God loves us at the price of the, of the life of his own son. He made us in his image. But there are some people, like Daniel, so extraordinarily godly that God says, you know what, Daniel? I'm now going to give you insight, unlike I'm going to give to anyone else. I'm going to give you some insight into the future. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. That's what God says. Now, I think something you could take from this is that God enjoys giving good gifts to his people. But one of the best gifts God gives to us is not health. It's not happiness. It's not wealth. One of the greatest gifts God will ever give to us is insight. Now, insight's a dangerous gift to get because what do you do with it? And sometimes what God tells us is scary. We'll see that next week in Daniel chapter 10. But God gives insight. 
Remember the insight God gave to the, this godly man named Simeon? Simeon's an old man. He lives in Jerusalem. He wanders around the temple all day just praying to God. And somehow God communicated that before you die, Simeon, you are going to lay your eyes on the Messiah. And he, I, if, if, that, if God said that to me every day, I'd be looking, who's got a baby here today? Who's, who's got the baby? And then let's say there are hundreds of babies coming into the temple. Which one is it? Well, it's got to be the people, the rich people, the ones who are best dressed. Is that right? No, here this little couple comes in with a pigeon. They probably caught it outside. A pigeon, because they had no money. And they walk in. There's the kid. It's this one right there. Then there's another lady. She had been in the temple of God for, for decades and decades, just giving praise to God. And when she saw this little boy, this little, little tiny boy, baby now, she, she said, I know, this is the one. See, the greatest gift God will give us many times is insight. Insight means insight into ourselves. Insight into the heart of God, but insight maybe into what God's up to. So Simeon knew, the wise men knew, Anna knew. These people knew that God was up to something, and now Daniel is going to be let in on something that's going to happen. Pretty significant. Here is the vision. The main thing God is going to tell him is, Daniel, in time, God will make everything right. It'll take some time. And that's kind of good news because where Daniel is sitting at that particular time, everything's wrong. He's in the wrong country. He's in, his, his, his country is a mess. The temple of God is gone. And he, there he's in captivity. He's, he's in exile. It's not right. But now the angel's going to tell him everything ultimately will be right. Here's what he says. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. There it goes. Now, literally, 77s means 70 units of seven. Remember, when you interpret the Bible, you cannot interpret it through an American grid. Just like if you're interpreting, let's say, um, something that was originally written in Latin, you cannot interpret it through an American English grid. You must first understand what did that mean when it was written. You see, we think in terms of decades. Our numerical system is based on tens not the Jewish people. Theirs is based on heptads, sevens. So in the calendar for the Jewish people, every seven years was a sabbatical year. And then seven sevens, that's 49 years, the 50th year was considered a year of jubilee because they dated their calendar by sevens. Seventy sevens means literally 70 units of seven. So, nerds, what does that mean? 490, thank you. Um, 490. And by the way, from this point forward, if you're here and you have a cell phone or an iPad, um, please use it. And get the calculator out, because you're going to do some math for me. Okay? So you can turn off anything I say, but have your calculator ready to go, because you're going to need it here. 77. 490 units, or years, 
are decreed for your people. Who are your people? Simple. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Daniel. Who is Daniel? He's Jewish. Your people are the Jewish people. Your people and your holy city. What's his holy city? Jerusalem, of course. Not Babylon. Not Susa. It's Jerusalem. Now, in 490 years, your people and your holy city are going to experience the following six things. Here they are. Transgression will be finished. Sin will be put an end to. Wickedness will be atoned for. Everlasting righteousness will be brought in. Vision and prophecy will be sealed. And the most holy will be anointed. Now, look at that list of six. The first three have to do with sin. You see the words? Transgression, sin, wickedness. And the last three have to do with something good. Righteousness, vision and prophecy, and holy. Negatives and positives. The first three, many people see, took place at least partially during the life and the ministry of Jesus. How many have found your transgressions to be finished? Would you please raise your hands? Oh, Dennis, why'd you raise your hand? We've got one holy person among us here today. No, actually, we've got someone theologically astute. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, how many of our sins did he pay for? How many? Past? Present? Future? Yeah, he paid for all. Now wait, so does that mean we don't sin anymore? Oh, so there's a sense in which our transgressions have been finished, but another sense in which they're not. Now, has all sin been put an end to in your life? If, you, if they have, I'd love to meet you. Has wickedness been atoned for? Yes. That was the purpose of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. That's what we celebrated in baptism today. Our sin has been atoned for. It's been paid in full by Jesus, the righteous, sinless one, whose worth was the worth of every human being that's ever existed, whoever could exist, because he is God. Yes, it's been atoned for. Now, do we live now in a country, or let's say a city, Sheridan, that has perfect righteousness? Is that... Are you sure? I thought it's a pretty good place. Perfect righteousness. What about our country? Uh, we're living in a time now of perfect righteousness. Isn't that right? Sure, someone said. It's ridiculous. How about our beautiful world? We're living in the times of perfect righteousness. Uh-uh. What about, are all the prophecies and the visions of the Old Testament sealed and completed now? Are they all? Not even close. Scores of them that have not been completed at all yet. The most holy being anointed? Who knows exactly? Is that a holy place, a holy person? We don't know quite. But when you look at this picture here of these six things that are to accomplish, be accomplished in 490 years, some of them have been accomplished at least partly by our Lord Jesus Christ in His first coming, and the rest will be accomplished by Jesus Christ in His second coming, but yet to be future. Now, what's Daniel going to do? Let's look at the pieces now. Seventy-sevens, that's 490 years, 77-year periods. 
your people, that's the Jewish people, your holy hill, that's Jerusalem. So this particular prophecy gives a date, 490 years, gives a people to whom this is directed, the Jewish people, and a place, Jerusalem. And then these seven things that we talked about, transgression will be finished, sin will be put an end to, and atoned for wickedness. Those in some ways have been dealt with by Jesus on the cross, but not completely yet until heaven. Then these are yet future. Everlasting righteousness, we certainly haven't seen that brought in. The vision and prophecy has not been sealed up and completed yet. And the most, and the most holy, whatever that means, has not yet been anointed unless that refers to the anointing of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So these are the things that Daniel sees in his He's being told by Gabriel, the angel from God, would happen in 490 years. And now, God's going to give specific dates. Here they go. No one understand this. From the issuing of, a, of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's specific. That's an event. Who issues decrees? Governments. So this has something to do with some government issuing a decree. And there are a number of decrees that scholars identify. But the one most commonly identified, well, we'll see in a minute. We'll see the date. Until the anointed one. Now, the anointed one is one of the typical words in the Bible for the Messiah. The anointed one, the Messiah, the ruler, comes there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Add those up, please, somebody. It, what is it? Not he, what is it? The city, which city? Jerusalem, of course. It, city, Jerusalem, will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Getting worse. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Now, the anointed one is somebody good who's going to be cut off, but now the, the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The anointed one is good, but he'll get cut off. The, this ruler who will come is bad, and he will destroy. Now, the word cut off, by the way, means to cut a covenant, to form an agreement, to, to cut a covenant, something good. So the anointed one will be cut off. He will make a covenant, but a good covenant. But the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. What city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. So let's do our math. Seven sevens, 49 years. 62 sevens is 434 years. And then there's one more seven left, seven years. You add them up and you get 490 years. Now, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, most scholars and Bible scholars, by the way, I mean scholars, I mean scholars into um, Persian writings, because this is in the Persian documents, as well as in the Bible. This is the decree issued by Artaxerxes authorizing Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem. And we know the date of that. We know the exact day. We don't know the year. The exact day is March the 5th, either 444, 445, or 456 B.C. The dates are a little tricky in the Bible, and we'll see why in a minute. 
until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, the Messiah comes. Now, the Messiah was declared, Jesus was declared the Messiah on Palm Sunday, where he was declared, this is the Messiah in a, in public, in a public fashion. There will be seven sevens, that's 49 years, plus 62 sevens, that's 434 years, added up, 483 years. It, Jerusalem, we be, will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Jerusalem's reconstruction took 49 years. From the time that Nehemiah went and rebuilt the walls in just less than two months, there was a, a, a kind of a shoddy temple there. There was a wall around this little tiny city, but then it took 49 years after that for the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt until you could consider it a real city. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off. Many people regard this as the cutting off of Jesus. Remember what he said just the day before, within hours of his crucifixion? He was with his disciples, and these are his words. A new covenant I make with you in my blood. Whoa. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. After the, the a Messiah was cut off in the year 70 A.D., Roman Emperor Titus, who was a type of the Antichrist, came in and destroyed the whole city of Jerusalem. And it was destroyed, and the Jewish people were eliminated from the city of Jerusalem now for, um, until 1948, almost 2,000 years. And still, to this day, there's no temple there at all. Now, um, by the way, uh, you, you, um, Matthew, you people who have your calculators out, here's what you need to do. Here's what's tricky. Daniel, when he lived, and where he lived, they were under a lunar calendar. The lunar, lunar calendar is not like the, the Gregorian calendar that we have today. So if you're going to try to find out what date he's talking about, you have to do some, uh, some mathematics. This is a, a, a story problem, which I used to hate because I could never get those crazy things right. But a lunar calendar has 360 days per year, and a solar calendar has how many? Not quite. The number is 365.2422. Remember, we have leap years. So, you people, tell me afterwards what you come up with. Um, if you take the 360 years and you add to the number of years that Daniel had stated here, and then you translate the 360 days per year of the lunar calendar into the solar calendar or the Gregorian calendar of today, guess what you'll come up with? You'll come up with March, April, either the year 30, 31, or 32 AD. That's pretty stunning. Because guess what happened then? Jesus was crucified. You can do your own math. You'll try to figure it out. It's fun. I, I've done this with groups of sixth graders. So if you're beyond sixth grader, you can figure it out. Um, it's fun. You see here, the biblical days, 360 days per year. You can, I'd like to see what you come up with. Show me afterwards. But remember, there's still a seven left. What about the 70th seven? Here's what it says. He, now who's the he? Again, back from your English class, if you want to find out what the pronoun refers to, you have to go to the closest antecedent. 
That's the ruler who will come, the type of the Antichrist. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, that's the last seven. In the middle of the seven, that's three and a half years later, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. That's the most extreme act of, of blasphemy against God until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. This is the last seven. And so, it says, he. Most people, many people would say, this is the Antichrist of whom it's speaking. Will confirm a covenant with many. A covenant made by the Antichrist with the many. The closest antecedent to the many are the Jewish people. Because remember, throughout the rest of the Bible, in Matthew from Jesus and in Revelation from John, we find out about the tribulation, that the tribulation begins with a peace treaty with the Jewish people. That's what Daniel said first. And then... In the middle of the seven, that's three and a half years later, what will he do? He will, halfway through the 70th seven, he will um, do something horribly abominable. But now you should rightly ask. If what you're saying, Tom, is correct, world history should have ended about 2,000 years ago. But it hasn't. Last I knew, I think I'm still alive, and so are you. We aren't living in everlasting righteousness. This is certainly not the millennium right now. So what happened? There's a gap. Remember, this, the book of Daniel, is unique in the Bible. Part of it is written in Aramaic. That's the language of the world at that time. That's like English back in the Bible times. That part is written to the Gentiles, but the part of, of the book of Daniel that is written in Hebrew is to the Jewish people. This is in Hebrew. This is to the Jewish people. So Daniel was being taught, it seems from God, that the history of the Jewish people has 490 years until it ends. But when the, when the Messiah was cut off and the city of Jerusalem is destroyed, from that point until the 70th year kicks in, God's focus is not on the Jewish people. His focus is on the church. But one day, the timeline will kick in. It will begin with a covenant, which an, an extreme desecration of God will take place in the middle, and then the end will come three and a half years later. Now, so Dan, Daniel 70th 7, a covenant, an abomination, and the end. Or... If you put it this way, it all begins with a decree, and if you can identify that with Artaxerxes' decree, then the Messiah coming and being cut off, the destruction of Jerusalem, a gap, and then the last week, a covenant, an abomination, and the return of the Messiah. This is what Daniel was told. So, so what? That's the obvious question. What is the significance? What if you were um, a Jewish person and, and you, you read this, this, this story from Daniel, the first thing it would do for you is you'd say, God does hear our prayers, particularly when we confess our sin before God. He does hear our prayers. That's good news. And if you're a Jewish person, you would realize, in spite of all appearances and all of the horrible anti-Semitism that's taken place, God does have a plan for his people. He has a game plan. And History is the unfolding of that game plan. And God is at work for good even when it doesn't seem as if he is. And just think, if you were um, a Jewish person living around the year, say, 10 A.D., and you're reading your Bible and you read the book of Daniel and go, 
you pull out your abacus and you start adding this up. You say, it's about time. Just like Daniel did when he was reading Jeremiah and he saw what God had prophesied in Jeremiah. He said, it's about time. What if you had lived around the time of, of just while Jesus was, was a child? You would say, it's about time for the Messiah to come. Simeon knew that. Anna knew that. The wise men knew that. And of course, it happened. But what about for us? How do we end? What does this mean for us? The first thing I would want to say, and hopefully you take this very seriously, when it comes to Bible prophecy, there's incredible disagreement. There are people who are very, very godly, who know the scriptures far better than I do, who would totally disagree with what I just said. And so you need to know that. And humility is a great virtue. And so you have to take what I said with a little bit of grain of salt. But it's certainly fascinating. Secondly, by all accounts, no matter how you take this passage, the Bible is stunning. Its accuracy is stunning. Its prophecies are stunning. People do not give dates when it comes to prophecy of the future, but God does. It's stunning. The equivalent of what Daniel did would be the following. What if someone, what if right now we were in Spain and the year was 1486 and someone came down the street right now, walked into First Baptist Church, 1486, and they say this. They come up to the front and they say, on July the 20th, 1969, someone will walk on the moon. You go, you're absolutely crazy. First of all, no one's going to walk on the moon. And second, you tell me the date? Hundreds of years before, and by the way, those dates I picked on purpose. Because that would be the exact equivalent of what Daniel said in the coming of the Messiah. That's how specific it is. That's how incredible this prophecy is. So what should that do to you? Well, that should build your faith in the Word of God. The Word of God is incredible. One of the great reasons I trust the Bible is because of its prophecies. They're stunning. They're absolutely stunning. The specificity of them, the perfection of them, how they did come true in ways that we know are true. And if God was so accurate with the past about the coming of Jesus, why would he not be just as accurate about the future? It's a faith builder. Secondly, it's a hope stimulator. No matter how hard or bad things get, God still has the whole world in his hands. And he is working out a plan, and his plan is perfect. It's a faith builder, a hope stimulator, and a love motivator. Because if, in fact, God is in control, and if, in fact, his word is perfect, what are we here for? We're here as God's children to represent the Lord Jesus Christ as his ambassadors. To not only tell the good news that Jesus told us, but also to live the good news as Jesus lived. That's what we're here for. And that is really good news. So out of this great prophecy of the 70 weeks, I hope what happens to us is our confidence in the world of word of God is increased. Our hope that God has it all in control, no matter who's in the, pres in the White House or who's uh, in the premiership or the presidency or whatever country may be, we don't lose hope because we know who's ultimately on the throne. And in the meantime, we're here to be ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I thank you for the Bible. At the very least, this passage is stunning. Our minds are pretty small. We don't have all the facts. But what little bit we do know, still, it's amazing. And that you would have given this to us to help us is, is pretty stunning. You must love us a lot. And you want us to know things that we wouldn't otherwise know. Thank you. I pray as a result of being here today, the confidence of your people in your word would increase. Our hope in, that the, in the fact that you are above all would deepen and that we would be busy following Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me. As you go this day now, after having witnessed people identify themselves as followers of Jesus, may you follow him. May you follow him with faith. It means you trust that what he says is true, with hope, because your soul is anchored to the truth of God's word, and you know he has the whole world in his hands and love, because that's who Jesus is. God bless you.